I had to be elected by 92 other Labour Party councillors. You come out of that fairly difficult process knowing you're there because you're the best candidate, not because you've ticked a box. Meet Bev Craig. Bev is the new leader of Manchester City Council, a job she describes in her Twitter bio as running the best city in the world. She grew up on a council estate just outside Belfast, and it wasn't the kind of place where you'd be expected to move away and go to university. But as you'll hear, Bev's not the kind of person to be pigeonholed. We recorded our chat before those momentous events in Westminster, which saw the Prime Minister Boris Johnson resign. And that happened on the same day that I, along with a group of business leaders and MPs, went with Bev to the Houses of Parliament to represent Manchester to lobby against the current proposal for HS2 as it comes into the city centre. You'll hear more about that during this interview. And I also wanted to find out what it's like to take over a job that's been done by the same person for 25 years and what is Bev going to bring to the city that's new. I'm Lisa Morton from Roland Ransfield PR and this is We Built This City. Bev, thanks for joining me on We Built This City. No, good. I've been looking forward to it. And we've given you six months to get your feet under the table before we've actually made you come on. And just for those of you who are listening, we're sitting in Bev's office in the town hall and we are surrounded by a building site but it's looking amazing out of the window isn't it and we just you just opened up a part of the square so yeah so see. albert square is starting to get there but mm. obviously there's a lot more work to do but that probably explains if you hear some beeping or some yes. building noise in the background <laughs> it's because we're actually beside a building site well, we're so. building the city bev aren't we indeed <laughs> so you're an adopted manc and you were born in belfast and you've been part of the city since 2004 was that right 2003 actually 2003 so yeah. that's when you first came to uni so, so tell yeah. me about that um, so I'd never been to Manchester before. Um, I'd seen it on the TV. And I decided from quite an early age that I wanted to leave. So I grew up just outside Belfast, so about eight miles outside. It's a place that nobody's ever really heard of. It's just a standard, kind of built in the 50s, 60s, council estate. We move people out of Belfast. Um, so I decided quite early on that actually I wanted to leave Northern Ireland. So when it came to university, applying for unis, I went through the list kind of scratched off anything that was Oxford, Cambridge or London and worked down the next five. Probably sounds terribly arrogant, but then at the time, I just really liked the draw of Manchester. So probably two things for me. One was football in Northern Ireland, massive football fans. Um, and then the second, I was of the age of watching Queer as Folk. So hiding in my bedroom, watching something in quiet. And I thought, well, actually, it's got a good university and it looks like a fun place to be. And then I moved here. And I think it was it was quite transformational for me, really. So I suppose that's why the city's got stuck with me ever since. Amazing. And what about the football? Well, what can you say? <laughs> um, I think it was probably it was less of a, a massive football fan and more just the culture of sport, mm. music and a good night out that mm. drew me in rather than an avid football supporter that went to all the games. Um, and, you know, it's been covered a little bit but I'm the, the the not winning at the moment football team so it's it's even less fashionable so you've got a blue blazer on I've got my red blazer on absolutely today. I don't don't discriminate <laughs> between jackets and so give us a brief overview of the job role and kind of what an average day would be like yeah so I think I think it's a good question because the leader is is a very mm. interesting term so I guess I have two jobs um the first is that I run the city council 
So I'm the political lead for the city council. So we've got an annual budget of about 650 million revenue, um, up to a billion pounds capital that we spend every year helping Manchester, doing all of the things we need to keep ticking over. And it's my job politically to oversee all of that. But the other side of it is around leading the city. And that's more around collaboration and partnerships, working with businesses, working with other public sector organisations and connecting into Greater Manchester. You're now the first female leader mm. um, of this amazing city, which just last week was ranked 28th out of 172 world cities. Mm-hmm. It's the UK's highest ranking city, isn't it? So that's a pretty amazing time for you to, to start as leader. Yeah, I think it's great. And I think it says a lot around not just Manchester's ambition, but what we want to be known for. So I've always said, it's great to aspire to be a world-class city, but world-class at what? And I think when we look at things like the livability rankings, we're talking about we want to be a world-class city to live in, to thrive, to do well a place where we value the the kind of life that you have, not just people that come here to live and and get on, but to be able to enjoy life, to be able to sample what Manchester has on offer, but also to not just be a mini version of somewhere else, to have your own distinctive identity. So, yeah, it's massively, massively exciting. I think, you know, if I think when I came to university in 2003, where Manchester is now in comparison to where it was then, I think there's been such a transformation to it. And it's interesting, you don't always see it as it changes around you. I've got a friend who, we went to university together and he's literally just moved back from the south of Spain, 15 years away from the city, and spent a lot of time with him over the weekend and his excitement at being back. It was actually, it was really quite powerful because you don't recognise it when you just see things being built up, but, you know, his, his enthusiasm of whole new bits of the city that didn't exist 20 years ago. So, yeah, exciting. Um, not without its challenges, of course, but that's all part of the, the challenge. Absolutely. And what was Manchester like when you were here as a student? What kind of stands out for you? Well, I think what student wouldn't talk about kind of the Oxford Road area. I think I'd, I'd base myself a bit all over South Manchester. So I'd lived in Fallowfield, Withington, lived in Hume for a while. Because I heard you say that... Um he spent more of his student life trying to change the world and drinking than he did in politics. So what kind of bits, what bits of the world were you trying to change and where, did, where were you drinking? Oh dear, I mean, what was I drinking? That's the question. <laughs> I didn't start my life out political. Coming from Northern Ireland, politics is, is something that a lot of people spend a lot of time avoiding, to be honest. So when I was younger, growing up in Belfast, I got involved in probably women's rights, LGBT rights, those, those kind of campaigns. So when I came to university... It was primarily about fun, so I had a great time. But then I also got involved in LGBT organisations in the city, and that led me to going... I remember it really struck me. I went to an international conference, so it was LGBT youth organisations from across Europe in the Middle East. And it really struck me that I went away to this conference with people, young people like me from around the world... And the position of privilege that you come from. So I would get to come home. I'd come home to a city like Manchester with my choice of gay bars, restaurants, anything that was on hand. And there was a chap from Lebanon at the time who was there. And he'd just been outed on the front page of, of the national newspaper. So we had to help him seek asylum. And I think, you know, for someone who hadn't really thought much about the rest of the world and was very content in their own sort of happy bubble that probably shifted the kinds of things that I got involved in. So I ended up running that organisation for a couple of years whilst I was at university, spent quite a lot of time in Brussels and Amsterdam, 
whilst whilst trying to get my degree mm. and sample every bar that was on offer <laughs> in Manchester. So it wasn't just pious and, and worthy the whole time. <laughs> so it sounds like an interesting time. And then which were your favourite bars then back in the day? I mean, I, I must I must confess to having absolutely zero alcohol taste whatsoever. So I think I spent most of my years at university um, in and around the village. Mm. It was probably a... Yes, fun. I was in Rushome after university and I ended up living in Rushome with my friends for a couple of years and we just spent our whole time there. It was the best place. Right, you had amazing. choice as well. Yeah, you know, yeah. There's, there's awful bots of wine that you could get for five pints and then go for another yeah. out. So. They were the days, five pound bottle of wine in Manchester. And so you're the first of your family to go to university. Mm. So tell me about that and how did the family react to your decision to move away from home? So I think probably two things. I think that the first is when you grow up in a community where it's fairly homogenous, where, where people are fairly similar. Sometimes it's not it's not a lack of aspiration. It's a lack of knowing what's available to you. So as a kid, I was a bit geeky. I didn't really have many friends and got bullied quite a lot, actually, when I was really young. And it was a teacher that sort of took me under his wing a little bit and said, well, actually, a route out for you is, did you know that if you did well at school... Um, that all of these opportunities might open up to you. Um, and that was something that just wasn't very common. Um, I mean, going beyond GCSEs, you know, I often joke as the first of my family to get GCSEs, never mind go to university. Even people understanding after GCSEs, you had to do A-levels mm. before you could contemplate going on something higher. So I think it was always something that it probably has shaped me because I don't think on that state... I was the only person that was bright, the only person that could have academically thrived and done well and gone to get degrees. But sometimes circumstance conspires in a way where people are given opportunities. Um, and, you know, I absolutely grasped that opportunity. But actually, there were so many people when I look back that have got a very different life now, and that's not to take away from what they could have had. But aspiration wasn't common mm-hmm. in that way. Um, so I think... I think um, it's not to say they weren't encouraging. It's just just a different world, an entirely different world, and one that, that's filled not always with optimism because you don't know quite what's on offer. So they've been broadly supportive over the years. I think, you know, slightly confused as to why you might give up a good career to do politics and uh, uh, have, have this job. But, you know, I think it's just... It always sort of struck with me, that feeling of people going into spaces that should be for them be it a school parents evening or be it going to a museum and not feeling at home in that place and I think that that runs to the heart of of some of my influences in politics around when we talk about what Manchester is and who it's for that actually we should be creating spaces where everybody feels comfortable and at ease and a space that everybody owns and not creating places where people would feel nervous going to and I think that's shaped me in lots of different ways. Mm. That's really true, isn't it? And I think a lot of the work after the pandemic has shown that um, even though we think we've got a city which is has equality and love in it, in actual fact, there's a lot less equality than we think. And so some of these spaces that we take for granted, just some people would not feel that they've got a place there or they can even step no, foot through and, the door. But, but I also think that, I, th- I think whilst the pandemic brought it to the fore and into people's consciousness... You know, there have been some very systemic things that have happened over the last 12 years in this country that's taken standards of living backwards. 
Um, you know, and I, I, I think in politics, the trick is not just to rely on your anecdotes around shaping policies, but to be able to draw on things that are real life experiences for people. So one of the things when the government sought to reduce universal credit back last October, November, when we did the analysis on a human level, you know, that might be a reduction of 20 quid a week. But in terms of Manchester's population, that actually was taking £60 million out of the pockets of Mancunians over the course of a year. So to do that after a pandemic, um, to do that when you know that the obvious response to the pandemic will be a period of economic uncertainty, there are some things nationally that have made that worse. And I think in the city, we try to frame what we can do to protect people as best we can. Um, And that's why we often talk so much about the importance of a good economy, about creating new jobs, about constantly and unashamedly bringing more businesses into the city and the city region to give people more opportunities. Um, Because some of the things that are within our gift, they're the kinds of things that we can do that help people out of poverty, giving them a good job looking at the work that we're doing around a housing strategy, around a good quality home, and the things that we can do are bit in in the city that's perhaps not some of the macro policy decisions that, that government would take. So let's just look at some of those challenges and some of the responses mm. to that. So you just mentioned the housing strategy and selective licensing as well. Just tell me a bit more about that. Um, so I've been quite open that for me getting a, a refreshed housing strategy has been a big priority. Um, I think Manchester has benefited significantly through its growth. And I think our popularity shows that we're a really, really popular place um, you know, to live, be it whatever survey you look at, from the global index all the way through to time out, you know, mm. third most fashionable city, to all of the analysis about young people wanting to make it home. Um, so for me, it's certainly not around losing sight of some of that. It's certainly not in any way a race to the bottom. It's about making sure that at all points of the housing market, we're intervening where we can and where we should to make sure that there is more supply than there is demand. Because I think at the moment, many of our problems are essentially explained by there being a bigger demand than there is supply. So be that around social housing or be that around the competitiveness for city centre apartments, you know, we've got a lot of that. You know, if we think about our population back at the turn of the century, 2001, 2, we were on about 420,000 people. We're now as a population just under 600,000 with another 30,000 people projected to grow over the next five to six years. So for me, the big challenge is making sure that we have a strategy that speaks to all bits of the housing market, that we intervene where we can and we should, to shape some of that and that we make sure that we're tackling the issue of supply and demand. So at the moment there are more people looking for homes in Manchester, be it social, be it city centre apartment living, than is currently on the market. So we have got an ambitious plan where we're going to build 36,000 homes over the next 10 years and of those at least 10,000 of them will be social and genuinely affordable homes. And that's why we've launched the term Manchester Living Rent. So to be able to say at a clear level, we're saying that you shouldn't be paying more than a third of your income if you're on a minimum wage job for your rent. And to use that as a baseline. And that won't shift things overnight, but it starts to make that, that point around, well, what do you need for a good life? 
And part of our challenge is obviously building social and affordable housing, but it's also thinking about the 40% of people in the city that live in the private rented sector. And I've spent a lot of my life renting privately. I've rented from some great landlords um, and rented from some that perhaps weren't quite as reputable. And it's recognising that the whole rental market isn't in the same place. There are some landlords that need a little bit more enforcement, that need a little bit more corralling and a little bit more closely monitoring. That's what things like selective licensing try to do. It's about bringing up a standard rather than making it more difficult um, and looking at different bits of the market in different ways. And then the final thing I'll say about housing is that for me, you know, and, and my upbringing sort of speaks to some of this, but growing up in council housing, where everybody was the same, where people didn't have a diversity of jobs, where you didn't mix with people from different backgrounds, actually what we want in the city are sustainable and mixed neighbourhoods. So if you're a family and you're doing well, your kids are doing well at school, but you want to know that your kids can do well and they can own their own home, but they can live close to where you are, so you can help them look after their own children, so you can have that family network. We don't want to create bits of the city where there's a price cap. So if you live in a bit of the city that has a lot of social housing already, we need to be looking at what we can do to help people get on the property ladder, to make sure that in communities, especially working-class communities or communities that we might not traditionally see as doing as well, have just the same amount of options and recognising that we need to build for that. So I think we've got a lot of challenges, but I think what we're doing is we're thinking ahead of those challenges we're not waiting until we see the housing market overheat like it's done in places like london or other capital cities mm-hmm. we're trying to get onto that early um, and we have a lot of space in manchester you know there is still plenty more space to build lots of houses not just in the city centre because mm-hmm. that's probably another thing i'd say a population of six hundred thousand people 60 70 000 of those max live in the city centre the rest of the people live you know from Moston all the way through to Miles Platting and, and Brooklyn's down in the south. We're actually quite a, a big city mm. beyond the city centre. Yeah. I think I've heard you say that, you know, there's a, a concern that we kind of design people out of the city. Is that what you, you mean? Is it just there's not those, the, the housing prices that, or rental prices in the city centre are just pricing other people out? Um, a bit, but I suppose it, it probably for me is a bit deeper than that. It's about giving people realistic choices. Mm. So, you know, I lived in the city centre and I loved living in the city centre. I had everything on my doorstep. Um, I rented, but I had a great time. I was, it was at that stage in my life where I wanted to be out and doing things. And we need to make sure there's the environment that people like that can both stay in the city centre, but also it's okay for them to think, well, actually, in a different phase of my life, I might want something different. So I think it, it, it's recognising that there are different markets for different reasons and that we want to make sure that what we're not doing is creating areas of the city that are completely out of reach to most people. Um, Although one of the things I would say that always surprises me when we talk about the city centre is I think it it does a bit of a disservice as to who lives in the city centre. You know, the data shows you're just as likely to get a barista renting a city centre apartment as you are to get a barrister. Probably more likely to get a barista, to be honest, before the barristers disappear out to Hill. No offence to Hill. Um, but there is, there's a great diversity in our housing market. And I think it's just about us saying, let's not lose part of what makes us great. 
And what makes us great is that we are a viable alternative to places like London because we've got so much on our doorstep um, and we can learn the lessons of elsewhere to make sure that we don't become unaffordable to the majority of people. Mm. I love that line now, baristas to baristas. Absolutely, but but it's true. It it says so much more about the rental market than we, we give it credit for. Yeah. And is there anywhere that you think say across Manchester that has got that community spirit right or is getting there you've got that kind of mix of of, of different people in the community that's working yeah I think we've got loads of that and I think what we're saying is as we build demand and as we see more people move to the city we want to be able to create even more of that you know I think that's that's the ethos of many of our communities you know the, the ward that I represent Burnage is I think a, a lovely mix of social housing of people that own their own properties and people that rent um, and, and you see that where people live next door to each other, um, you know, and, and you get a good community spirit that comes off it. So I think to have that in a city is also quite special. Mm. And that probably speaks more to the city's relationship with identity and pride than a lot of other places. Um, but I think that's one of our greatest strengths is just how proud of Manchester everybody is. Mm. And I think tapping into that, it's places that, you know, if you could bottle it, other cities would be chasing after that mm. um, massively. So so I, th- I don't come... I come from things from a really positive perspective. I'm not going to come in as a politician that says it's all terrible, it needs to change, because actually that's not representative as to why people are excited about Manchester. We just need to make sure as we enter into our, own, our next phase over the next decade that we build on that success, that we make sure we're taking that success to people that already live in the city... Um, and that we don't become the victim of our own success. Mm, true, absolutely. Let's talk about HS2. <laughs> because you know what I have to say is that since obviously we've been talking about it more extensively, by the time this podcast goes out, we'll have been to London with a big group of business decision makers and leaders to go and put our arguments across for having the right deal. I was just amazed at the negative impact it would have on this in Manchester if we don't Mm. get the right deal. So for our listeners, can you explain where we're at with this? Yeah, so so in a nutshell, I mean, as a city, we've always been broadly supportive of High Speed 2. You look at any modern European or Western country and actually train travel is lagging way behind in this country. You know, the ability even 15 years ago of getting between Stockholm and Gothenburg, much quicker, much faster, more effective. So I think there's a real clear case for better connections, both into the capital, but also between other towns and cities. And I think we'll come on to that in a second. With High Speed 2, though, the proposals, they're proposing a £96 billion programme over the next 20 years. They'll see a faster connection from London to Birmingham. They'll also see connections between Manchester and Birmingham, but also Manchester to London. And the reason it's important is twofold. The first is, obviously, it's high speed too, so it connects you faster into those two places. But the second is that it takes some of those trains that are clogging up some of our existing lines and puts them on a line of their own. So it actually increases capacity for the rest of the rail network. What's currently being proposed, however, by the government um, through high speed too, now I'll say this to you with a straight face, without laughing, is that the the train station, there's going to be a station at the airport, which is currently unfunded, and is the only station in the whole country that the government does not have an answer for in terms of how it will be funded. 
the only one. It then goes beneath ground. It travels under Manchester, beneath ground. And then, round about Ardwick, it comes out of the ground. And it goes up onto stilts 10 to 15 metres high and travels from Ardwick into Piccadilly, above stilts, concrete stilts, um, that will, I think, just blight that whole section of the city and effectively cut it off mm-hmm. in terms of transport. Um, then the proposal is that there's a surface station, so they're above ground. So rather than it go into Piccadilly, it goes into a station beside Piccadilly that they would build. Um, and I've glibly said, only half glibly, that you spend this £96 billion pounds essentially to come, come out at the moment at the back of Greg's. Not even the front of Greg's, because I like Greg's. <laughs> we don't don't like get me Greg's. wrong. I'm not going to knock Greg's. <laughs> but you don't plan a major infrastructure programme for £96 billion pounds mm. without thinking about where it arrives. And that probably gets to the nub of our challenge. What they're proposing with their above-ground station, it would be full from day one, so capacity would be at its maximum. But it also blights the landscape. It restricts our opportunity for development And it also cuts off our opportunity to be able to build further rail infrastructure to places like Bradford and better connections to Leeds, like was cut out of Northern Powerhouse Rail. So we're proposing that actually for a bit more, and yes, there is more money, although it's not quite um, the five billion that government claim it to be, you could build a beneath ground train station that's a through train station. That means it's not reliant on the train driver jumping out at one end of the platform and jogging to the other. If you need to stop for a toilet break, suddenly the trains are delayed by five minutes, um, rather than being able to travel through, turn and come back. So we're saying that you can improve capacity, you can deal with the problems of blighting the landscape, and you can create a modern station that across Europe people are building underground. From you know some of what's happening in places like Stuttgart, all the way through to you go on holiday to Mallorca, in Parma, in Mallorca, where do they have the station? Beneath ground. Why do they have it beneath ground? Because it would be a nightmare to build a brand new modern station in the middle of a city centre. And it's really difficult, because what I don't want to do is be this kind of the chippy northerner, kind of the north versus south dynamic. But what it does is it, apart from mandating a 3,000 space car park, alongside it which anyone that drives into the city centre will know you wouldn't have 3,000 people driving in central Manchester to use a car park Um, it also restricts our ability to grow so it takes around about 330 million pounds per year out of our economy it potentially restricts 14,000 jobs each year being involved in Manchester Um, but it also it says something about aspiration you wouldn't do this and they haven't done it in London but you also wouldn't do it in Oxford or Cambridge. You wouldn't do it in Bristol. Um, and any other European city that I've spoken to have laughed. Um, and this is where my 1970s rhetoric comes from, because actually it's European colleagues that have said to me, what's oh, very 70s. Um, so there is something that we've got this exciting narrative of Manchester adding to the UK economy. We've got ambition for what we're going to achieve in Manchester. And we just want the government to match some of that ambition, to say, well, actually, you've demonstrated that you are becoming a world-class city. You've demonstrated that you're punching consistently above your weight and that you're able to deliver. We trust the vision that you have of yourself. And therefore, when we open the train station in 2040, 
we want to build something that complements that vision not just you should be happy you should be grateful that you've got something because at least you're not leads because we cut leads mm. um, and that's what gets to the nub of the issue you know our crossrail's brilliant it's a great way of connecting London 19 billion pounds to connect one bit of London to another that's 76 miles connecting Manchester to Leeds 44 miles when it still takes you well over an hour often an hour and a half you might have to stay over the night before if you've got a business meeting in the morning because the train might get cancelled it just says something about aspiration outside of the capital to me and for people listening what is it that they can do to try and impact so we've we've had the second reading of the bill and hybrid bills are really quite complicated so there's going to be a committee now a transport committee that will look at this and it'll probably be over a 12-month period. So we're talking quite a long period. They'll look at it in depth and they'll be taken from MPs across parties. So I would encourage, once the government publishes who's on that committee, we'll be making an effort as a city to lobby them, to put our case across. And I think there's a role for residents, for businesses, for everyone in that, that it isn't just us complaining in the city because we want more and we always want more and that's because we're Manchester. It's about saying, actually, there are some fundamental concerns. There are some issues around ambition. And if, if you share some of those concerns, you know, it's not just having a pop at the government. In fact, you know, we've had cross-party support from some MPs that there's, there's a basic case around how the city looks and what economic prosperity for the city will look like in the future. Yeah, it's so important. I mean, it? but it, it's just the, the, the current plan is bonkers. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's no I mean, way images, to dress it up. No, I mean, the pictures that the MEN ran recently, you're just thinking, is that for real? It's, and I think a lot of people were shocked when they actually saw that because that just brought to light. It is so antiquated. I need to jump in at this point because since we recorded this interview, um, Bev and myself and a number of business leaders and MPs went down to Parliament to put the case forward for the right HS2 solution for Manchester. And it just happened to coincide with the day that um, Cabinet members were leaving left, right and centre and the atmosphere in the House of Parliament was incredible. So I've collared Bev on the steps of Central Library to find out how she feels about what's unfolded over the past week. I mean, I don't think we could have picked um, a more uh, memorable day, um, certainly. Uh, being down on the Wednesday, that everything was kicking off. I think I'd start off by saying it was a really, really great showing, particularly from not just Manchester, but northwest-focused businesses, um, and plenty from London as well, actually. So it was a really good, I think, clear and coherent case that was made. Um, and our businesses did us pride in that front. But to try and deliver a speech on the importance of long-term transport infrastructure with chance of Boris Moscow and Benny Hill music in the background <laughs> is definitely going to be up there in terms of memorable days. Um, and I would just say, in a point of seriousness, you know, it feels like the world's in turmoil around us. Um, for big issues that are impacted on Manchester, this means that we have to wait even longer. You know, we'll make the case to new ministers, we'll set it out again, um, but whilst national politics is in turmoil, it's cities like Manchester that will suffer because we need to crack on and get on with what we're doing. And sometimes when national government freezes, it just gets in the way. Mm. So what does that mean for Manchester now, Bev, would you say? What's next? 
Um, so I think, you know, as has always been the case in Manchester, we'll put forward, particularly when um, the Conservatives elect a new leader, uh, we'll put forward our case again. But it, it just shows, you know, and it's really difficult to, to not be party political about this, but we've had to restate really simple things repeatedly. Every time someone resigns, every time there's a new minister, you know, the turmoil that we've had in this country um, since 2010 has put places like Manchester at a disadvantage. So we'll continue to make the case. Um, my view is that with the current government that we have at the moment, that's not going to lead us where we need to be. Um, and we'll be prepared for whatever comes next. OK, so let's go back to the interview and talk about the young people of Manchester. Let's talk about our year, 2022, mm. which we're several months in now and it's been, we've seen the impact already. So just tell us about what our year is designed to do. Yeah, so we spent a lot of time through the pandemic talking to people of all ages. And what became really, really clear is that children and young people across the country, but particularly in Manchester, particularly because we had quite so many lockdowns and were under so many restrictions, um, they had a particularly rough deal coming out of the pandemic. So we did quite a lot of work with children and young people and they gave us a steer as to what a focus would look like. We were, we were really quite clear we wanted all of 2022 to really shine a light on what it is we need to do for our children and young people. But they gave us quite a, an important steer. But they said it should be fun, it should be optimistic and it should be hopeful for the future. So this rhetoric about what a terrible time, how many hours they've missed, all of this stuff, sure, that can set out your case but you need to be talking about what you're going to do for young people in the future. So I think that's been a really exciting challenge for us. So in our, our year of dedicating kind of the council's core business to children and young people, we've talked about what more they want to see in the city. We've talked about skills and opportunities, how we can involve business. We've talked about basic things like planning for the future in parks and how we can get our parks to be more girl-friendly rather than just go on the designs that we've always used in the past about some standard swings, a slide and a skateboard track. So there's stuff that's practical and there's things that's for the now. But there are also, I think, some really important things about how we embed that. We are a young city. You know, we've seen a significant rise in birth rate. We've had to build more primary schools. We're now building more secondary schools. And we want to make sure that those children, young people, as they grow up in the city, find a real home, a real place, and they get to thrive. So it's a really exciting challenge, and we'll be building on it after 2022 with our work with UNICEF, where we're going to become a child-friendly city. And it's just about thinking, what more can we do? How can you make places both more exciting but also unlocking those opportunities? And I must say, the support that we've had from partner organisations, from businesses, um, from everyone really, has been really quite inspiring. And the children and young people that have been involved so far have loved it. Um, and then the final thing I'll say is that there's this bigger point around voice and the credit that we give children and young people and being able to own and shape their own future. Um, and we've had, I mean, even at full council meetings, we've had presentations from children and young people that, you know, knocked it out of the park, even in comparison to what adult politicians were delivering in the chamber. So I think that the key takeaway is, you know, patronise at your peril. Actually, this generation of young people in this city have got the ideas not just for, for the future, but they've got the ideas now. And it's our challenge as politicians to make sure we listen to them and we implement them. Mm -hmm. Because if not, they'll come for our jobs. Completely. Absolutely. And I mean, when we did the launch before Christmas and we were chatting about it last night, 
those young people's voices were just incredible. And those young people just, um, they blew everybody away, didn't they? And it was so much needed because obviously we've been involved in that project and so we're very proud mm. to be part of, of that legacy creation um, with you. But certainly I think the response straight after COVID was a load of, you know, rightly so, I suppose, middle-aged people thinking, okay, what do we need to do to yeah, build the city Yeah, how can back? we help but them with the homework? It, yeah, exactly that, yeah. And it was about the narrative of how much they've lost. They're sick to death of hearing it. And, you know, they quickly forget that, don't they? So it's about those opportunities. And I'm delighted to see so many of our clients and people really pull mm. together. And it's inspired them. It's made one of our values is walk a mile in another's shoes. And I've seen so many of those corporate organisations really getting to grips with what young people need and, and celebrating it. I know. I, th- I think it's a good... I think it's been a good tonic as we've come out of the pandemic. It's really galvanised. We want something that's positive, mm-hmm. but also that's optimistic. Yeah, yeah. And what about Manchester Day, which was last week? Oh, that was. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was, that was that was fab. It, yeah. was, it was. I mean, I did get in a bit of trouble with oh, that. What though. happened? So, um, <laughs> my partner, who I don't make go to many things, um, I, I may have promised lunch and shopping <laughs> if we just popped into Manchester Day. Next thing you know, she's stuck behind me, walking at the front of the parade with the Lord Mayor. I was going to say, was she on a float somewhere? So that aside, no, but it was just on a station, it was absolutely oh, bro- it was. brilliant to see everybody back. I think kind of the thought of having something free, that's fun, that's positive, that takes over the city centre. Um, it was just great to see so many families in town, having a nice time. Um, seeing see all that was on, on offer so it was, it was good good to be back it was brilliant and the noise was just so Absolutely. good my daughter's got a new puppy and I took him to go and start to see the beginning of the parade and he was not impressed with those drums <laughs> we came past but it was brilliant because the people that I walked up then to first street and there were people saying what's that noise mm. what's happening and then they were all kind of going to um to have a look and then at the end of the parade I watched it from in where she lives so I could see the whole of Deansgate coming down and just it was amazing and I think it really showcases I guess the depth of Manchester mm. so in the space of half an hour I was chatting to, to loads of different people um from all over the world yeah. you know talking to a family that were from Chile mm. um you know some tourists that were over from from Detroit in the States and then if you look at the parades if you look at the entries we had you know, we don't shy away from the diversity in our heritage in the city, um, and people welcome that and they yeah. see that. And I think that's that that's that's what's so good about it is people see themselves um, being showcased, mm. and that's something I think quite exciting. Yeah, I agree. It was a great day. So you've been in post now for nearly seven months, isn't mm. it? Yeah, mm. and you're not only the first ever female leader, but the youngest ever leader. Yeah and LGBT leader and it was a moment in history although we've discussed that and it seems impossible that it's 2022 and that's a kind of revelation but when you're in Manchester drinking all those cheap <laughs> bottles of five pound wine did you ever think that was you know leadership of Manchester ever in your sights and in your imagination? Not at that point no I suppose I'd never really anticipated getting involved in politics I'm a humble person, but I was also quite confident of my ability. So I knew that kind of, and I I hoped to do good things, but probably didn't assume that they'd be in politics. I joined the Labour Party in 2009, just as Nick Griffin and the BNP were on the cusp of winning in the European elections. And that for me was a bit more of a reckoning. It was kind of, well, you've, you've had all of these ideas, you've had all of these thoughts. You'll tell anyone that wants to listen that you've got all of these ideas, but what are you doing about it? 
So it felt to me that getting involved in a political party was my way of doing that. And then I got elected in 2011 in Burnage in South Manchester. And it was probably after a couple of years I thought, well, actually, you know, this, this, is, this is for me, this is exciting stuff. So I think the worst thing a politician can do is be arrogant and take things for granted. And I suppose I was unprepared is the wrong word because I knew it was significant, but probably still a little bit surprised by just how much that intersection of gender, of age and sexuality was, was talked about. I mean, my mum joked, she said, it's a good job when you were gay, Bev, because it's in the front of every national newspaper, so <laughs> um, there's no hiding secrets. But I think, I think for me there's probably two things. The first is that so for as long as I've been alive, two men ran Manchester. Mm. And that's both a positive, and there is a positive in that, that actually Manchester survived because of its stability. So actually having just two people through the course of my 37 years being in charge of the city is in and of itself probably one of the reasons why, with stability of leadership, um, we've probably as a city operated more like kind of, I guess, stable German um, areas operate. But then the second is around, I suppose, the importance of politics and leadership positions of people seeing who they are. Um, and I think that probably is where it reads the moment a bit more. I think that's much more of our generation around that sort of style of visible and open leadership and getting to model, not just in terms of aspiration, but behaviours, and that, that's really important to me. Um, but the other side of it is that despite all of these things, you know, I had to be elected by 92 other Labour Party councillors um, you come out of that fairly difficult process knowing you're there because you're the best candidate, not because you've ticked a box, because these guys are probably the toughest electorate you'll ever come up with in terms of scrutiny. Um, and they're certainly not the box-ticking type exercise. We're over 50% female. We've got one of the most diverse groups. We've got a massive LGBT contingent that's representative of our population. We've got ethnic diversity that reflects the city. Um, so as a tough electorate, I don't think any of them would have been happy just ticking a box to say, oh, well, now it's turn, a turn for a woman. Um, so I think that's the other side of it, is, is knowing that you know, you might be the first woman, you might be the first openly gay person, and you might be the youngest, but you were also the best qualified and the best place to be able to take the city to the future. And I think that's been quite reassuring. And how did you feel that first day? When was the enormity of the task ahead sinking? Or yeah, how did you, it feel? You, spe- you spend a long time, I suppose, imagining things. And it's like any job, when you get it, there is a moment of, oh, right, okay. But the other thing behind the scenes was that in the week that Sir Richard announced his resignation, I was attempting to move house. So that's quite a busy mm-hmm. time. And I also play hockey. So I'd gone into Hustings with a dislocated finger and three fractured ribs. Oh, no. <laughs> so, no, no. Um, so that was probably, it was also a moment around the seriousness kind of sunk in. So I've, I've obviously not really played hockey much since then. <laughs> it's not really the image that I want to portray. Um, but I suppose that it was just a recognition that there were some things in your life that would have to change as a consequence. But excitement, I think there were areas that I was always going to be intrigued how it would play out. So... The nature of the Labour Party is that it has engaged in 
little bits of melodrama over the last couple of years. So it was interesting to see how that would play out in the city. Were people going to run headlines that business should be afraid or that, you know, socialism was on the up, all of these things. So you're always cognizant of how that's going to land. And I would say sort of within the first month or so, I think, you know, the, the first thing that really struck me is back to that point about people wanting Manchester to succeed. And I think having principles having politics, having purpose, having all of those things are really important, but also pragmatically being able to bring people with you and say, actually, we're here for bettering the city has meant that people have really got on board with that. And I've been impressed from kind of public sector organisations to business, just how many people have got, got behind that. Very much so. And it feels like you've covered so much ground in that period of time. Um, like you seem to be everywhere. Look at me, even on social media. Like I can't, I can't keep up. So I mean, and I bumped into you yesterday, running across St Peter's Square yeah. out of Cafe Nero. Did your timetable routine change dramatically overnight? Absolutely. Mm. So thankfully, I've got a very good PA who um, manages to field the requests. So I, I do. I suppose I pride myself in not being in this big office all of the time. Um, because I think, you know, if you if you want to engage with people, but also you want to hear and are genuine around taking people's views on board, then, you know, it's up to you to get out and to speak to people and hear what people say. So one of the first things that I did was that I wanted to spend time with councillors in every ward of the city. So we've got 32 wards across Manchester. Um, so from, from Woodhouse Park all the way through to Charlestown, getting out, having quality time, with councillors there, meeting community groups, doing all of that was was really important to me. Um, And similarly, making sure that I'm not seen as someone that just likes business or just likes the charity sector, but is able to draw from all of those. I think it's about building foundations and it's about people getting to meet and hear me and my ideas, but me also taking the same from them in terms of their aspirations. And you, you don't get that in a briefing document. You don't get that in a presentation. Um, it is important to be visible and for people to see that. And, and fair play to the Manchester public. They're much more switched on than at times you could give them credit for, both in terms of recognition, but also the thoughtfulness around some of the things that you need to do. So, yeah, it's been good. I've been, I've been much busier, not going <laughs> to lie, um, but in a good way. Because I remember you saying when you first got elected that your mum had her reservations, didn't she, about why would you want to do that? Well, she, she, yeah, no, she said to me, she said um, the, the night before, she's like, well, I don't really see many pros of this job. And I'm like, mum, how do you mean? Like, you, you get to run effectively one of the coolest cities in Europe like it, it's an enormous task you know it's, it's an honour well it sounds very stressful and I'm like, well, well yes well, it probably is quite stressful um, and then she said well you won't get many holidays and I was like probably not and then the, this is the bit that I told you wasn't it the killer line that only a mother could deliver oh you're already divorced once you need to be careful your partner <laughs> likes holidays so I just thought, Thanks, I've got a sports injury. <laughs> My mum's telling me, well, it sounds a bit stressful. But I think, to, to me, it's, it's, it's an ideal job. I, I get to just talk about how great Manchester is all of, all of the day. Who wouldn't want wow, that? Absolutely. I've got to say that, because you had a couple of moments early on when you were turning up for meetings, didn't you, as new, as new leader? And there was definitely kind of a middle-class middle-aged white man view on whether you were right for leader when you turned up at some of the meetings Is that right um, 
I mean, I think there's always going to be a bit of a challenge, isn't there? So, so over the years, I remember years ago, another councillor from another authority down south when we'd gone, we, we were peers, so I was, I was a chair of a committee at the time, and he asked me if I was on work experience. <laughs> so, you know, I think that there's always going to be a component of that, and I think it's part of what, what people are used to. Mm. You know, I was at an event a few weeks ago with a gentleman who was very insistent in calling me the young lady. And I'm like, well, I mean, I'm probably not as young as you think. Good moisturiser, so, you know, you've got to work with it. Um, but, but I suppose there's, there's, there's something around how you respond to that. Um, and I think I've always taken it from a perspective that, um, you know, despite the jokes, despite the kind of um, self-deprecating humour, there, there's an element of steeliness that sits behind that. So, so I've always taken a bit of a view that is, well, underestimate me at, at your peril. Um, because I quite like surprising people. And I think, you know, if somebody attempts to think, well, perhaps this isn't what I was expecting, you hear me speak on what I think the future of the economy should be, what transport infrastructure looks like, what the global role of cities are and how we engage with business, and some of those reservations suddenly dissipate. Absolutely. And kill them with kindness. (laughs) Always with a smile. Uh, Yeah. And so uh, you touched on it a few times when we've spoken that we're completely obsessed about Manchester's aspiration as a city. Mm. But there are some people who don't want to have to come along on that journey and they should, it should be okay that they have a good life where they want to, at the level they want to be at. Yeah, and, and I think that's where different bits of the system play different roles. If I think about my family back in Belfast, they don't necessarily want to have different kinds of, of jobs to what's available to them, but they still want to live a, a good life. They still want to be happy and content around what they feel is an offer for them. So I think that that's a principle that sort of has shaped to me that we should be building the next creative directors, tech startup businesses, CEOs. You know, we should be building that for Manchester schools, but also recognising that actually for some people there are other routes to success and a successful city is somebody that plays all of those strengths. So I probably see see Manchester's role as it's more like an incremental reset. It builds on the things that have really worked for us, you know, our ingenuity, our ability to get stuff done quickly, our ability to work at scale, but always then being attuned to what people need at that point in time. Yeah, I agree with that completely. And just touching on values there, then obviously that's something that, you know, we talk about as an organisation. Mm. What's important to you in terms of values when you show up as leader? So I'm I'm lucky to run a council, I think, that's got a clear identity of itself. So we, we've got the Our Manchester strategy that sets out what we want to achieve, but also sets out the way that we want to achieve them. You know, so values like listening to people, being collaborative, being creative, all of that's really important. But I think for me... It's always around, I suppose, how you connect your purpose to your passion and what's the point of doing something and asking yourself every day, well, what difference has this made? Is this an effective use of my time? Because ultimately, in a job like this, you know, if if I don't leave Manchester in a better place to where it started, then I've not done my job. And yes, we can have a subjective discussion around what better means, but that's where being clear about your purpose and being passionate about it, for me, are really, really important um, because if I simply wanted to build a successful life for myself that was about fame or about money, 
uh, you wouldn't be a local government leader <laughs> at a time when our budget's been reduced by yeah. 420 million, when we face a cost of living crisis, and who knows what else. So, so it just it always has to connect back to what what are people getting out of what you're trying to do. I think the other thing I would say is that for me, there's always been a principle: if you don't know who your allies are until you've asked them. And that comes from some very early on political experiences back in Belfast, where I grew up on, I suppose, one side of the fence and you get taught to live in a particular way. You know, we were a very sort of staunch, loyalist, Protestant community. You didn't mix, you didn't meet people who were Catholics or nationalists ordinarily. And it was only really as I grew up, got involved 14, 15 years old in those social justice campaigns um, in Belfast that it was actually, it was on the issue of of LGBT rights. The only political party that would listen to us or would speak to us was Sinn Féin. Now, thinking about faith and Catholicism and identity, you probably wouldn't have assumed that to be the case. So I think that's always sort of stayed with me, that you can make assumptions about people, you can assume where people are coming from, but people always have the capacity to surprise you. Um, so never operate in a way that rules out that surprise because it could be the most interesting proposition that you've had in a while. And as any of the values that we subscribe to, do they, any of those fit in with how you want to show up? Yeah, I think there's quite a lot of commonality there and I think that's where that sort of modern reflective leadership style comes in. You know, things around leaving leaving the world in a better place, always giving your best self. When you're in the room, you're in the room. Um, you know, I'm not one for passengers and people that, you know, if I come to a meeting and we've got at my massive table <laughs> and we've got 20 people here and only two people speak, well, what, why are the rest of mm. people here? What, what are they benefiting from the situation? Sometimes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so like, do you all need to come mm. to the next meeting? Yeah. And they'll all look at you. Yeah. Um, it's like, well, if you don't speak at the next meeting and contribute, then you don't need to come to the one after. And sometimes you just get into that meeting culture, don't you? But it's just, it's recognising what an effective use of your time mm. is. I maybe wouldn't go as far as the the value with the asterisks is um, in the swearing, but I'd say that resonates. We've, we've asterisked them out, though. Absolutely. So I'll, I'll translate that to, to be yeah. nice. I'm going to just ask you, imagine, a quick fire round now, oh, Bev. <laughs> so. This is the bit that always gets me in trouble because somebody is always upset. <laughs> right, OK. Describe Manchester in three words. Energetic, compassionate and ambitious nice and you love your music so the best gig you've been to in manchester oh gosh this is eclectic isn't it (laughs) oh so it has to be actually a really small one that manchester international festival did years ago with the xx oh was that that it was in a tent Classic, classic. Yeah, yeah. Wasn't it? And the uh, the um, just really, yeah. yeah. Always, always really liked them. But there's just something that's kind of small and kind of almost a bit haunting about not having all of that infrastructure. I mean, I've been some some great gigs from, you know, the academy right the way through to the arena. Been some massive stuff, but but it's just really interesting the little things that that stay with you. Definitely, I love um, MI. It's amazing. The one that stands out for me which was at Mayfield Depot. Do you remember that one where they had a load of like naked, yeah. um, sweaty French people like climbing all over you? That was a oh, complete... Oh, no, absolutely. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So there's been... And I think that's it. I think I think the music scene in Manchester, there's something on offer for everyone, yeah. big or small, kind yeah. of, yeah. What do you order at the chippy? Oh, I'm dead straightforward. It's just fish and chips. <laughs> I don't like peas. 
don't like mushy peas. Do you know that Sir Richard Lee's your predecessor made his own mushy peas? Yeah, I know, but I I still don't like mushy peas. Maybe that's why, who knows. Um, But no, I've never never taken to mushy peas. Apparently, um, who was I speaking to last week? Emma Goswell, and Mm. she's found a chippy where they do curry sauce and Irish curry sauce. It's probably just really bland Irish curry sauce. (laughs) She said she prefers the Irish sauce. There's probably no curry in it. It's a problem. A standout moment for you in Manchester politics? Oh, Manchester politics. Maybe historically. I mean, you've got so much on offer here from kind of the Industrial Revolution to the suffragettes to um, all the way through. I think it probably would have to be really personal, actually. And it it says what what Manchester's about and what allies are about. And I think it was in the 80s, Manchester Standard on Section 28 to galvanise that as a country, I think was probably one of the reasons that attracted me to the city, that you can have... You know, people like Graham Stringer and Richard Lee, you wouldn't put on as poster boys for equality in any other sphere of life, effectively risking their political careers to stand up for something that actually um, history proved them to be right. Just gives me goosebumps, that, actually. And lastly, Ian Brown said that Manchester has got everything but a beach. So is there anything else you think that's missing that would complete it? Oh, well, I mean, I'm with him on the beach, so I grew up by the sea, so definitely on the beach front. Um, I think I think Manchester's always evolving, so I, th- I think what Manchester, what Manchester will have in ten years' time, I don't think we even know we needed. So I think that's that's always a good sort of ethos. That um, I don't think we're missing anything, but that means that we don't stand still and we still want to put more things. So I think you know there's some really great stuff coming online over the next year from the factory that will yeah. be the permanent home of Manchester International Festival all the way through to Co-op Live. Um, so I think we're always adding things that Mancunians didn't know they needed until mm. they, they loved them. That's so true. And lastly, um, in the next 20, in 25 years' time, mm. when you're looking back at the impact of your work, and legacy building for Manchester, what would you want to see? I think for me it's around being clear that we're recognised on a global scale for what it is that we achieve, not just what we talk about. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's where we are. That actually, you know, we're really on the cusp. We think about technology, we think about life sciences, we think about digital and creative. And we've still got a little bit more to do around making sure that there's that pipeline of talent coming through for the future, that that pipeline is Mancunians, um, and that we're able to grow in a way that stays true to our roots, that's very, very different to simply just agglomerating um, and having everything at scale. So a bigger city, but something that's demonstrably better, um, and also fairer in its ethos. I don't think you can lose sight of that ethos. And I think if you look particularly at Scandinavian and, and other European countries, but also places like Japan, um, some of the most equal cities are some of the most economically successful cities. So this isn't around dumbing down what people can achieve in life. It's not around, um, I think, kind of levelling down in any way. It's about being able to say that actually all of our communities can benefit and we're a better, fairer place for it. Thank you. That's been amazing. And um, I'm so excited about what's coming. And this podcast is called We Built This City. But as you've highlighted, we continue to build. But there's always more work to be done. And it's not just about the stuff we're building. It's about the kind of the love and the empathy um, and the equality that we're building into this city for the next 25 years. So thank you so much. And I'm mm-hmm. honoured to be able to you know, stand <laughs> beside you and uh, be part of the team. So thank you so no, much. No, thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Beth. Bev Craig built this city by connecting her purpose to her passion, by helping to make Manchester a place for everyone, and by being clear that if you underestimate her, it's at your peril.
On the next episode of We Built This City, you'll hear from another amazing Manc born, bred or adopted. And that episode will be available on the 29th of July. And if you want to find out more about how Roland Dransfield can help you drive your values and create relationships that build your business success, then head over to rdpr.co.uk or you can find us on Instagram at Roland Dransfield or Twitter at rdprtweets. Or feel free to give us a call at the office on the same number we've had for 25 years on 0161 236 1122. And in the meantime, don't forget to rate, review and follow We Built This City. Thank you.